Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Before I start this week's episode, I have some good news and some bad news. The bad news, this is the last episode of season two. But the good news is we will be back in just under a month on Wednesday, July 11th, and episodes for season three will be released weekly instead of every other week. If you prefer to listen to our podcast without adverts and four days before anyone else, you can for just $3 a month. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash they walk among us for more details. If you've enjoyed this season, please rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast provider. To keep up to date with news on the podcast, you can follow us on our social media accounts. We're on Facebook and Instagram under They Walk Among Us Podcast, or you can follow us on Twitter at TWAU underscore podcast. We also have a closed Facebook group where we discuss true crime, your favourite podcasts or anything in between. Just search Facebook for They Walk Among Us podcast. Thank you for listening, and now on with the episode. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 28 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Listener caution is advised, as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. On a dark December night, a couple were heading home after an evening out. As they drove towards Alvechurch in Worcestershire, they noticed they were being followed by another car with two men inside. The couple couldn't see who the occupants of the other vehicle were, but they kept driving despite the strangers shouting, blaring their horn and flashing their headlights. Suddenly, the other car sped in front and came to a screeching halt. Both cars were now at a standstill on a quiet deserted country lane. With their path ahead blocked, the couple got out of their car and an argument between the occupants of both vehicles erupted. The couple were brutally attacked. The female was struck forcefully in the face and a fiancé was stabbed over 40 times in the back, head and neck. After the horrific attack, the two men involved fled the scene. Hearing screams for help, someone at a nearby property ran to their aid. He was confronted by the sight of a woman screaming, cradling her partner who would later die from his injuries. Police were told the road rage attack was carried out by a heavy-set man who disposed of a black woolen hat near the scene before jumping into the other car that was driven off by his accomplice. But who was this mystery attacker and what connection did they have to the victim? It wouldn't take long for police to find out and a devastating truth would be revealed. (laughs) 
Lee Harvey was born in September 1971 to parents Maureen and Raymond. Raised alongside an older sister Michelle, from an early age, Lee would say, I'm going to be a bus driver when I grow up. He worked hard at school, he enjoyed sports and won a handful of snooker tournaments. He would go on to realise his childhood ambition when he successfully applied for a job as a bus driver in the King's Norton area of Birmingham. When Lee was 20, he had a daughter with his girlfriend, but two years later the couple went their separate ways and Lee moved back home to his parents. Tracy Andrews was born in April 1969. Her mother Irene had married Tracy's father John in 1963, but the couple had split up when Tracy was eight years old. She was raised in Hereford and Worcester, spending most of her time with her mother. She sang in a local choir and had ambitions to be a nurse before finding work through a youth training scheme to help the elderly. She would go on to sell perfume and makeup on a market stall. Tracy had a strained relationship with her stepfather, so when she was 17, she moved out and lived with her brother. Four years later, she became pregnant. The relationship with her daughter's father didn't last, and the couple split up after just 12 months when Tracy walked out on her 22nd birthday. After briefly moving in with her mother, she got a flat in Alfchurch, a village in the West Midlands about 12 miles south of Birmingham. Tracy's friends would often remark how glamorous she looked and she had aspirations of being a model. In between a handful of small modelling jobs, she worked as a barmaid at the Red Lion, a pub close to her flat. In October 1994, while on a night out at Baker's, a nightclub on Broad Street, a destination for partygoers looking for a good time in Birmingham, Tracy Andrews met Lee Harvey. The pair started chatting and they were immediately attracted to one another. They told their families about this new person in their lives and after only a few months the couple fell madly in love and moved in together. Although they weren't without their problems, they wanted to make things work. As the relationship progressed, their obsession with each other was becoming problematic. While they both loved each other, they didn't trust one another. Lee and Tracy had an ex-partner they would often need to be in contact with to arrange parental visits, but this made both of them extremely jealous as their attention was diverted elsewhere. The relationship was so volatile that neither knew where the other stood. Lee would often return to his mother's, bringing boxes of his things with him, but then the following week he would move back in with Tracy. In a last-ditch effort to paper over the cracks, in October 1995, Lee proposed to Tracy and the couple were engaged. The pair were over the moon, believing the marriage would be the very thing that could save their relationship. Later the following year, one evening, while the family all sat around to watch television, they saw a news report. Stephen Cameron, a man in his early 20s, had been stabbed in a road rage attack on a motorway in Kent while his girlfriend watched on in terror. Tracy remarked, Godly, that could have been us. They're good looking like us. He's dark and she's blonde. Maybe fate was playing a cruel joke, or perhaps it was just coincidence. A short while later, after Tracy and Lee got engaged, during a Harvey family gathering, Lee's sister announced that she was also getting married. The Harvey family were elated. Tracy Andrews was not. Angry that Lee's sister might be getting married before her, Tracy stormed out of the room. She believed there was a family conspiracy to ensure that Michelle was going to get married first. Tracy wasn't the centre of attention, and that hurt. Over the following months, Lee and Tracy argued continually, and eventually, Tracy gave Lee an ultimatum. Either the two split up, and Lee would be free to go to his sister's wedding, or they stay together, and he not attend. This caused a significant rift between the Harvey family and Tracy, and they refused to have anything to do with her. On the morning of Michelle Harvey's wedding in May 1996, 
Lee dropped off some presents and wished his sister well, but to save his relationship with Tracy, Lee didn't attend. The following month, Tracy broke the news to Lee that she was pregnant. The couple were ecstatic and told their families almost immediately, but not everyone was pleased. Lee's mum and sister were concerned and wondered whether it was right to raise a child in such a volatile relationship. But even with their doubts, Lee's family passed on their congratulations, never mentioning their apprehensions, only wishing the couple the best and offering support where they could. It would be only a few months later in August of that year when Tracy rang Lee in a flood of tears. They'd lost the baby. Tracy had fallen down some stairs while out shopping. Lee was completely distraught. Despite their differences, Lee's sister Michelle and her mother Maureen went to visit Tracy. She was barely eating and had lost two stone in just a month and a half. Once the dust had settled and the routine of daily life had set in, the arguments between Tracy and Lee started again. But this time, Tracy began to focus her frustrations on herself. She kept remarking to Lee that she had lost so much weight after the miscarriage that Tracy thought she needed cosmetic surgery on her breasts. In the belief that this would make his fiancée feel better, Lee cashed in his savings and paid for an operation, but chose not to tell his family. As months passed, yet more domestic disputes followed. On one occasion, the police were called to the couple's home and found them arguing surrounded by broken electronic equipment. Tracy claimed that Lee had thrown a VHS tape at her. In a separate incident, the couple were again seen fighting in Birmingham city centre before Tracy was put in a taxi and sent home by police. They'd had arguments before, but things were getting out of hand. It seemed the pair couldn't live together, but they couldn't live apart either. On October 25th, the police were called yet again. Police Constable David Hind arrived with a fellow officer and Tracy asked that police remove Lee from the property. As he collected his belongings, an argument between the couple escalated, so the pair were split up and placed in different rooms of the house by the officers. As Lee left the property, the couple was still arguing on the doorstep as the officers watched on in disbelief. One minute Tracy and Lee's future together was cemented and they would never be apart. The next, they couldn't stand one another. During one of their breaks, the couple decided to go out separately to Baker's nightclub. Noticing each other on the dance floor, an argument erupted. Tracy physically attacked Lee, biting his neck and scratching his face. The incident left him with cuts, which both his sister and mother noticed the next day. Incredibly upset and unable to contain their frustrations any longer, Lee's family told him that he had a young daughter to think about. They asked him, was this really an environment he wanted her to grow up in? Lee's sister Michelle and his mother Maureen had supported Lee as much as they could, but they couldn't understand why he would stay in such a tempestuous relationship. Lee didn't want to give up on Tracy or the life he had built with her. However, his family had had enough. On Sunday, December 1st, 1996, Tracy and Lee had been drinking in the Marlbrook pub in Bromsgrove. Around 10.20pm, they left the pub to go on their five-mile journey home to Tracy's flat in Alfchurch. According to Tracy, a dark-coloured 1986 Ford Sierra car began to tailgate them. Flashing his lights and beeping his horn, Lee was getting frustrated so would speed up and slow down, making rude gestures to the other driver. The car tried to overtake Lee, and both drivers began to shout obscenities while driving at speeds of up to 70 miles an hour. As they passed fields and farmhouses, the noise they made on this tranquil country lane would have drawn attention. By 10.30pm, they had made their way to Cooper's Hill, less than a mile away from Trace's flat. On the narrow road, flanked either side by a grass verge, the dark Ford Sierra car had sped up and overtook the couple's vehicle, skidding to a halt and blocking their path. Lee stopped the car and got out, and the two men began to argue. 
The driver of the other car looked to be in his late teens with short, dark hair. Tracy shouted at Lee to get back in the car. As the argument seemed to have abated, a passenger, larger in size than the driver, got out of the other car and headed towards Lee. The two began to tussle. The man screamed a number of racial slurs at Lee, so Tracy jumped out of the car, but as she came face to face with the heavy-set man, she was struck in the face. As Tracy fell to the ground, she saw Lee, in front of the car, being punched multiple times, although the man looked like he had something in his hand. After the frenzied attack, the two men fled, jumping back in their Ford Sierra and driving off. Only a short distance away from the attack, Richard Maine, who was leaving a nearby property after visiting a friend, heard a woman screaming. Rushing towards the scene, he saw a woman sat cradling her partner. The man was unresponsive and covered in blood. The emergency services were called, but despite the best efforts of paramedics, Lee Harvey was pronounced dead at the scene. In the furious attack, he had been stabbed a total of 42 times with stab wounds to his head, neck and back and he also had slash marks to his hands and face. An ambulance took Tracy Andrews to Alexandra Hospital in Redditch and they arrived at 11.45pm. Tracy constantly asked for Lee, pleading with the ambulance crew to let her know where he was. In the early hours of December 2nd, once Tracy's wounds had been tended, she was taken to Redditch Police Station to give a statement. She told officers that both her and Lee had been victims of a road rage attack by an assailant in a black Sierra-type car after her fiancé had traded rude gestures with the other driver. She described the man as overweight and remembers him having big staring eyes. She told officers, It's all like a dream. She explained that after being punched by her attacker, she ran to Lee's aid. She said, I could not hear him breathing anymore. I had done some first aid and tried to check for a pulse. I saw some sort of wounds to Lee's throat and neck, which were bleeding badly. The attack seemed to be over in a few seconds. At 3.20am on December 2nd, Lee's mother and father received a visit from the police. At first, they believed the car pulling up outside their home was Lee after a night out. However, two police officers came to the door and asked if Maureen and Ray were the parents of Lee Harvey. They were in a state of disbelief. The officer notified them that he believed Lee Harvey had been killed in a road rage attack. The couple were told Tracy had also been assaulted in the incident and she had been taken to Alexandra Hospital. Begging the officers to see her son, Maureen was told it was not possible. A murder inquiry and a forensic team were working to find out what had happened. Maureen started to ring around the family and inform the mother of Lee's child. The next day, Maureen and Ray's home was surrounded by reporters before the bereft parents made the journey to identify their son's body. After the brutal murder of Lee Harvey, a wave of headlines highlighting the increased frequency of road rage attacks appeared in the press. Several experts studying road rage at the time believed it was a symptom of the pressures and strains of modern living. However, there now looks to have been a shift in understanding. Multiple causes such as control, unchecked anger, narcissistic pride or merely bad behaviour are thought to be some of the reasons behind acting out behind the wheel. Road rage is defined as a point when a driver loses control of their behaviour, acting in an aggressive or violent manner. This is often attributed to the actions of another driver. However, violence is always a choice made by the perpetrator. press conference to address the murder of Lee Harvey was held on Tuesday, December 3rd, 1996. At Redditch Police Station, Lee Harvey's girlfriend, accompanied by his parents, bravely came forward to appeal for information. She said she became frightened when she realised they were being followed. 
Tracy Andrews and Lee's parents made an appeal to the public for any information that might lead to an arrest. Tracy's physical injuries were visible. Both her eyes were bruised and swollen. She told the crowd of reporters how people change when they are behind the wheel of a car. Both me and the other person were like playing cat and mouse with each other for a while. Um, and they overtook us. I was shouting at Lee to, you know, slow down, just ignore them, stop the car, but he, I don't know, I don't know if a lot of men are like it, and a lot of women are like it, but um, when you get behind the wheel of the car, you know, sometimes you change personality. Tracy also appealed to the driver of the other car to turn in his passenger. Um, whoever this person is that was with you, you obviously know him. But he's ruined my life. He's ruined the life of Maureen and Ray and Michelle, Lee's sister, and these little girls, Danielle. And now, uh, please just tell us who he is because you won't get in any trouble at all. It was not your fault. Tracy then went on to describe the man who attacked her and Lee. It was just the way he looked. His, his eyes were... He had starry eyes. Um, it just didn't seem normal. I saw the man hit me. I don't know what with. I didn't see anything. Um, I got out of the car. Tracy explained how she comforted Lee after he had been stabbed. I've done a first aid course when I was little. Um, I was trying to think of everything that I could do. Um, put my coat over him and I didn't move him. And uh, I just tried to stop the bleeding really and comfort him as much as I could. Lee's father Raymond asked the public that someone speak up. If he's done it once, you can quite easily do it again. And I'm appealing to everybody out there, it could be your son, your daughter, or one of your children next time. I appeal to you. As a just a loving father to to please turn him in. He deserves nothing better. Throughout the press conference, Lee's mother Maureen held Tracy's hand as she recalled the events of that night. Floral tributes were left at the scene with a note from Tracy dressed to Lee which read God bless, I love you I hope you're still with me A day after the press conference at her mother's flat Tracy hadn't had a proper night's sleep since the incident so she said she needed some time to herself After the wait of the last few days finally came to a head she went upstairs Tracy's mother Irene picked up her daughter's handbag and noticed two notes inside. The first was addressed to Tracy's daughter. It read, My precious little sweetheart, I love you more than life itself. Please promise me you will always be a golden little girl and be strong for mummy. You are the most beautiful, kind, loving little girl in the world and I am so lucky that you are all mine. I'll always be with you. God bless you, darling. Have a happy life. I love you so much. Your mummy. A second note written to Tracy's family said, My family, I am so sorry to do this to you and leave you with all my pain, but please understand that my life ended that night and I just want to go to sleep. I love you all so much and I will always be with you. Please take care of my precious little girl. Keep her safe and I love her. Please play Celine Dion at my funeral that was our song and Anita Baker God bless you all please understand I love you all Tracy an officer who was working on the investigation into Lee's murder was at the house at the time they entered the bedroom and found Tracy unresponsive and surrounded by empty pill bottles she had taken an overdose of over 200 tablets the emergency services were called and Tracy's heart stopped beating twice while on the way to the hospital. She later said she just couldn't live without Lee. As Tracy was recovering in hospital, the police made a substantial discovery that would help them catch Lee's killer. After the appeal, 
police received a call from two witnesses who spotted Lee's car. On the night Lee was murdered, Simon Baker and Elaine Carruthers had been out for some drinks with friends when they passed Lee and Tracy travelling in a white Ford Escort on the opposite side of the road. Simon Baker distinctly remembered the car due to its sporty alloy wheels and rear spoiler. Approaching Cooper's Hill, Simon Baker spotted a single car with a couple arguing inside. As the witness drove off, he noticed the car needed to reverse up the road as it looked as though the driver had missed a turning at a T-junction. He was sure there wasn't another vehicle following them. On the morning of Sunday, December 8th, 1996, police held a press conference to confirm that someone had been taken into police custody concerning the murder of Lee Harvey, but Detective Superintendent Ian Johnston wouldn't confirm who the suspect was. I'm not prepared to speculate at all on the woman who... She's not been questioned. She's brought into custody and taken to a hospital. In the press conference, Ian Johnston confirmed they had arrested an individual but wouldn't give any further details to the public. He said, We wish to confirm that yesterday a 27-year-old woman was arrested in connection with the murder of Lee Harvey. In accordance with our duty of care, she was examined by a police surgeon and taken to hospital. We have not and will not confirm the identity of that person. Despite pleading her innocence, Tracy Andrews was placed under police guard and assessed at the Rearside Clinic, a secure facility in Birmingham for people who have been charged with or committed a criminal offence and have shown aggressive or threatening behaviour. After Tracy recovered from her overdose, she was released into police custody. She was interviewed at length on four separate occasions, but didn't deviate from her story that a heavy-set mystery man attacked Lee. She was adamant that she was not involved. As the rain came down outside, Tim Robinson, Tracy's solicitor, spoke to the press to confirm that she had been arrested. My client was arrested three minutes ago and she is now being taken to Redditch Police Station. She has been arrested on suspicion of the murder. Tim Robinson was a rather flamboyant solicitor, often labelled as brash. He had amassed a sizeable fortune and lived an unashamedly lavish lifestyle. He was someone who enjoyed the spotlight, and this was a case that would put him there. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. On Thursday, December 19th, Tracy Andrews was charged with the murder of Lee Harvey. Police continued to canvass the area of the attack. Before Tracy's arrest, 30 police officers manned eight roadblocks between the Marlbrook pub and Cooper's Hill in a bid to find anyone who might have seen something on the night Lee was murdered. 650 drivers were questioned, but no one mentioned the car chase that Tracy Andrews described. After Tracy was held in custody in Eastwood Park Women's Prison, towards the end of Christmas she was freed on bail under the condition that she remain at her parents' home in Alvechurch. The prosecution challenged the initial decision to allow her release. However, they failed to convince a judge at Oxford Crown Court to overrule the decision. They believed that the argument started over a black woolen hat, which Tracy was said to have given Lee as a joke a few days before his death. The hat was later found in a nearby ditch. The piece of headwear was part of a racist joke she had with Lee. He had olive skin and Tracy would tease him about it often saying he looked black. The style of hat was predominantly popular with young black men in England at the time, and Tracy thought giving it to Lee was funny. The prosecution believed that this was the provocation that led to the attack. The court heard that Tracy had attempted to take her own life and was receiving psychiatric counselling. Tracy's solicitor spoke to the press and stated, she is grateful to members of the press for the response to the appeal which has been made. Already one very significant witness has come forward. In an unusual move, Tracy's solicitor requested that all press restrictions on the case be lifted and a judge agreed. Tim Robinson successfully explained that the likelihood that Tracy committed the attack was weak and tenuous and accused the police of a substandard investigation as a murder weapon had not been found. Tim Robinson said that due to Lee Harvey's olive skin, he was frequently mistaken as coming from the Indian subcontinent, and particularly Pakistan, and the defence postulated that the attack was racially motivated. Every major newspaper was now free to print every detail of the case, and Tim Robinson appealed to the public for further witnesses. Tracy was granted bail, and along with her solicitor, a press conference was arranged to put forward her side of the story. Held on Wednesday, February 5th, 1997, the police were in attendance, however hadn't been invited. Tracy's solicitor explained that they had received new evidence which casted doubt on the case against her. Three witnesses had stepped forward and confirmed Tracy's series of events. Another member of Tracy's legal team, Pat Alexander, confirmed that a few weeks before the road rage incident, a social worker had been driving on the same area between 10 and 11pm and another car tried to force her off the road. The incident was reported to police and the defence team said the description of a man in the passenger seat bore a striking resemblance to the individual said to have attacked Lee. Tracy's legal team had also said that two other witnesses had heard the sound of two cars driving through a village near the scene of the murder. Detective Superintendent Ian Johnston said, On our initial examination it doesn't appear that the information released would significantly alter the course of the investigation. However, we remain open-minded. Lee Harvey's funeral was held on Friday, February 7, 1997 at St Nicholas's Church in Kings Norton was attended by his friends and family. His sister Michelle said, Our loss is God's gain, and heaven will be a much brighter place. Over 300 mourners attended, but Tracy Andrews was noticeably absent after the police requested that she stay away. Two weeks later, on February 19th, 
Trace's lawyer issued a photo-fit picture of the man she claimed was responsible for Lee's murder. In the press release, Tim Robinson explained that another witness had come forward after the same man had attacked him near the Mulbrook pub. What further complicated matters was the e-fit generated of the man, said to have murdered Lee Harvey, looked incredibly like Brian Russell, one of the police officers working the case. He had interviewed Tracy on the night Lee had been killed. During April 1997, Tracy Andrews appeared before Birmingham Crown Court. She only spoke twice, confirming her name and her plea of not guilty in a hearing that lasted 20 minutes. She was released on strict bail conditions and the case was adjourned for a trial later in the year. The trial began on July 1st, 1997 and Tracy Andrews vehemently denied murdering her fiancé, Lee Harvey. Judge Mr Justice Buckley would preside over the case, David Krigman QC acted on behalf of the prosecution and Ronald Thwaites QC on behalf of the defence. Tracy and her defence team had to fight their way into the courtroom through the large crowd of reporters that had gathered outside. Tracy Andrews came to court directly from her parents' home. She has been on bail since December, when she was first charged with the murder of her boyfriend, Lee Harvey. Harvey's family arrived together this morning. His mother and sister today heard the prosecution begin to outline its case against Tracy Andrews. The police were of the belief that Lee Harvey and Tracy Andrews were arguing in the car on their way home when Tracy exited the vehicle near the driveway of Keeper's Cottage. What was said between the couple isn't known, but a pathologist confirmed that Lee had been stabbed 42 times. 30 wounds penetrated his neck and chest, and a number of small defensive wounds were made to his hands. A significant amount of blood was found in Tracy's hair, and blood splatter patterns were discovered on her clothing, which suggested the only way they could have got there is if she was close to Lee when he was stabbed. There was also blood found on the floor behind Lee's white escort, which was inconsistent with the account Tracy gave, as Lee Harvey was meant to have been attacked at the front of the vehicle. A hat that had been found near the scene was said to have belonged to the assailant, but police believe this had in fact been in Tracy's possession, as cat hair discovered in the material matched those of her mother's cat. Police also highlighted there was a window of between 5-10 to 10 minutes in which Tracy made no attempts to call for help, until Richard Main, who had been visiting a friend that lived nearby, heard her shouts as he left Keeper's Cottage. David Krigman QC said, After the attack, Tracy was to claim that the death was caused by the occupant of another car in the course of a driving dispute. There never was some mystery murdering motorist. It was her. He added, Not a single soul, not a single motorist, not a pedestrian, not a householder, ever saw a car being pursued by another car. On the second day of the trial, Birmingham Crown Court heard from Victoria Silcock, a barmaid at Baker's, a nightclub in Birmingham city centre. From the dock, the witness told the court how less than two months before Lee was murdered, Tracy and her fiancé had been arguing near the dance floor, and Tracy lunged at Lee, clawing and biting him during the attack. The witness said the bite was like a cut, in the shape of how you would bite into an apple. Lee was then taken into the club's kitchen to tend to his wounds. The barmaid again spotted the couple together in the nightclub, where Tracy was demanding that Lee order her a drink before punching him in the side of the face twice. Victoria Silcock told the court, Tracy punched him on the cheek twice. He didn't retaliate. She was shouting at him. She was angry that he was in her club, she said. It wasn't very hard, but enough to make Lee flinch. She was shouting, Who are you with? The court then heard from Police Constable David Hind, who visited the couple on October 25, 1996. Tracy had contacted the police as the couple had broken up and Lee wouldn't leave the property. When the officers arrived, it was noted that Tracy Andrews was highly agitated. Lee Harvey remained placid and would only become animated when his partner provoked him. PC Hind said Mr Harvey was sat at a table in the lounge. He then appeared to be quite calm. Tracy was in quite a worked-up state. She was quite aggressive towards him, almost provoking him at some stages. There were verbal exchanges between the two of them. I had to keep pulling her back in towards the lounge and sitting back down again. 
Obviously, Mrs. Andrews wanted Mr. Harvey to leave and he wanted to take his clothing before he did so. We eventually managed to get Mr. Harvey to leave and he went out at the door. Miss Andrews was still shouting and upset, shouting towards him, and it was rather hostile. The court was told that on December 1st, 1996, a neighbour who lived in a flat directly above Lee and Tracy heard them arguing. Shirley Peters said she often heard the couple shouting and the day Lee was murdered was no different. The pair continued their disagreement throughout the morning and early afternoon before Shirley Peters left her home to go for a walk. A young girl who couldn't be named for legal reasons also informed the police that she heard shouting outside her window near the scene of a murder. The courtroom was played her interview in which she said, I woke up. I heard some people talking outside. It sounded like two people and there was definitely a man. He was shouting and it sounded as if they were arguing. The young girl added, I didn't hear what they said, but they were definitely having an argument. I didn't hear the other voice because it was softer than a man's voice. The jury also heard from Susan Duncan, a local resident and ex-CID officer who lived near the scene of Lee's murder. As she left her home, clutching a torch and a mobile phone, she wandered over to the grisly scene. Richard Main, who was already present, told Susan Duncan to notify the emergency services straight away. Susan Duncan told the jury what she saw and the questions she asked Tracy Andrews. She was covered in blood. It was all over her face, all over her hair, and all down her top. What she was saying to me sounded very disjointed at the time. I asked more questions. I asked her about the other vehicle. I asked her if she had seen the colour of the vehicle. She said no. I asked her if she had seen any part of the registration number, a letter or a number, and she said no. The court was provided with further details that looked to implicate Tracy Andrews in Lee Harvey's murder. Three strands of Tracy's hair were found in Lee's hand between his thumb and forefinger, and a clump of 80 to 100 of her hairs pulled out from the root were found in close proximity to his body. Police also discovered a blood stain inside one of Tracy's size 4 boots. The blood matched Lee's DNA profile. The stain looked to match the size of an imitation Swiss army knife, which the prosecution believed was used to kill him. Despite a murder weapon never being found, pieces of a Swiss army knife, a pair of blood-stained tweezers and a spring were discovered near the body. Tracy was said to have hidden the knife in her boot before emergency services attended the scene and she then disposed of it in one of the waste bins when she arrived at Alexandra Hospital. Joanne Mitchell, a nurse at the hospital, recounted how Tracy went to the bathroom a number of times in the space of three hours. If a knife had been disposed of in the bin, it would have been taken to an incinerator later the next day. Simon Baker, who witnessed Tracy and Lee arguing in the White Escort around 10.35pm on December 1st, 1996, was questioned by the Defence Council. He was asked if perhaps he just didn't see the Ford Sierra. Simon Baker replied, That is completely and utterly untrue. I definitely would have noticed another car at the junction. At the start of the following week, Dr. Helen Whitwell, pathologist, addressed the court. She explained that Lee had suffered two wounds to his neck that had penetrated his skull and another injury to his back which had been so deep it marked his breastbone. Though the pathologist couldn't determine which wound ultimately caused Lee's death, one had cut his carotid artery. At the end of the second week of the trial, Ronald Thwaites QC spoke to the court and said, Tracy Andrews did not have a motive for murder. She had a motive for marriage. This is the man she had fixed upon, and he upon her, to spend the rest of her life with. They had found glamour with each other, charm with each other. They wanted each other. He said Tracy had been vilified in the press through lynch mob journalism. He added she doesn't claim celebrity for herself. She doesn't seek it. She's a young woman, a single mother, in common with thousands of others.
When Tracy Andrews took to the witness stand, she said that her relationship with Lee Harvey was very, very loving, but stormy at times. Ronald Thwaites, the defense counsel, asked Tracy if she had killed Lee, and she said, no, I did not. She added, I loved him more than anything in the world. Tracy went on to describe a number of instances when she was assaulted by Lee and said he was driven by jealousy that she might return to her former partner, the father of her young daughter. She did admit, however, that she never had a miscarriage. She, in fact, had an abortion. During a particularly nasty argument with Lee while they were on holiday in Portugal, Tracy admitted what she had done. Lee couldn't bring himself to tell his family, and his relatives heard this news for the first time inside the courtroom. Despite her actions, Tracy stressed how much she still loved Lee, and that's why she attempted to commit suicide. She couldn't be without him. Tracy was allowed to leave the witness box and showed the jury that she still wore the couple's engagement ring before recounting her recollection of December 1st, 1996. The following day in the courtroom, David Krigman QC, working on behalf of the prosecution, addressed Tracy and accused her of stabbing Lee in the back after he walked away from a heated argument the couple were having. Tracy exclaimed, I'm not going to admit to anything I have not done. Asking her to explain the bloodstains found near the rear of the Ford Escort, David Krigman said, Lee Harvey retreated from his attacker at the rear of the car, did he not? Tracy Andrews replied, I don't know. Tracy then began to blame the police, suggesting they hadn't done enough to find a witness who spotted the black Ford Sierra car that was pursuing her and Lee. David Krigman directly asked Tracy if she was involved in the attack on Lee Harvey, and she said, no I was not. He then said, you are a woman of considerable deceit. Tracy replied, no I am not, I am trying to help the best I can, but it was hard going back along that road, and I don't want to go. The relationship was not violent, but stormy. He had been violent towards me. Due to the time that was said to have elapsed between the attack and neighbours hearing her screams, Tracy couldn't provide a proper answer for why she didn't sound the car horn or run to the nearest house. She was also asked why she was coated in Lee's blood. Tracy explained that she was cuddling him during his dying moments and she didn't want to leave his side. David Krigman continued to question the defendant, pointing out the inconsistencies in her story. Tracy explained that she just agreed with what she was told in the police interview as she was too traumatised by the event. She said, If someone had said there was a pink elephant there, I would have agreed. David Krigman responded, You didn't go as far as pink elephants, but you've invented a black Sierra, haven't you? After four hours of deliberation on July 28th, the jury had still not reached a decision, so made their way to a hotel for a night. The following day, the jury of nine women and three men found Tracy Andrews guilty of the murder of Lee Harvey by a unanimous verdict on Tuesday, July 29th, 1997. As the verdict was read aloud, an audible gasp was heard from the public gallery as Lee's parents and his sister burst into tears. Tracy Andrews stood motionless and showed no signs of emotion as she heard the verdict. The last few steps of freedom for Tracy Andrews. A killer, said the police, a woman of profound deceit, said the prosecution, and the jury agreed. Ninety minutes after she arrived at Birmingham Crown Court, the jury found her guilty of killing her lover, Lee Harvey. Lee's parents, Maureen and Ray, spoke to reporters after the trial. We're very happy with, with today's verdict and uh, we just feel that justice has been done for Lee. Not for us, but for Lee. Thank you. To everybody concerned and everybody out there that's been supporting us. And now perhaps I can put my son to rest. When passing his sentence, the judge, Mr Justice Buckley, addressed Tracy Andrews and said... The jury has found you guilty on very strong evidence of murder. Only you know precisely what went on that night, but we all have seen the awful consequences. Certainly it has been a tragedy for all concerned, and I feel deeply for the families on both sides. There is only one sentence prescribed under law, and that is life. 
Tracy Andrews was sentenced to a minimum term of 14 years before she would be eligible for parole. Tracy Andrews spent time in Bullwood Hall Prison in Essex, and at the start of 1998 she was granted leave to appeal her sentence. She believed the outcome of the trial was a miscarriage of justice. A member of the defence team, Tim Robinson, had spoken to the press after the sentence and said we are very surprised by the verdict. Miss Andrews is devastated by it, as are her family. I've seen my client and she is conducting herself with great personal dignity as she has done throughout the case, but she finds it hard to believe she is in this position. There will be an appeal, but the grounds have not yet been decided. Miss Andrews has been convicted of murder, an offence she has vehemently denied, which is based largely on circumstantial evidence. During the five-hour hearing, her appeal lawyer, Ronald Thwaites QC, explained that the media had unfairly covered the case, portraying Tracy Andrews as a female terrorist, a firebrand and a knife woman. He believed this image influenced the jury and the judge had failed to take any reasonable steps to assess the risks and therefore she didn't receive a fair trial. Ronald Thwaites QC said, Her name and picture quickly became synonymous with unmitigated wickedness, cunning and duplicity in the collective public mind. The lawyer did admit, however, that some of the damaging stories were due to the defence team's request to lift reporting restrictions in an effort to encourage witnesses to come forward. Three judges, Lord Justice Roch, sitting with Mr Justice Laws and Mr Justice Butterfield, did not believe the jury was prevented from reaching a proper verdict and Tracy's appeal was denied on October 14, 1998. Tracy had been taken to court, though waived her right to appear at the hearing, instead choosing to stay in her cell. Following the conclusion of the appeal, Tracy's mother Irene was assisted from the courtroom as she was inconsolable. Maureen Harvey, Lee's mother, stated, I still believe that life should mean life. I am happy with the result. Justice has been done. So where are we now? During April 1999, in a letter addressed to her lawyer, Tracy Andrews admitted that she stabbed Lee Harvey but she explained that she was acting in self-defence. The letter should have been forwarded to the Home Office, though somehow ended up in the hands of the News of the World newspaper. In Tracy's revised version of events, the couple were arguing in the Mulbrook pub about their previous partners. As they drove home, the disagreement became so heated that she got out of the car. Lee shouted for her to get back in the vehicle, but when she didn't, he produced a knife and tried to force her back into the car. The pair began to tussle for the blade, and in the process, Tracy stabbed Lee in self-defence. Tracy threw a black hat she had in the car away from the vehicle and hid the knife. Once she arrived at the hospital, she admitted that she flushed it down the toilet. Interestingly, police could find no evidence that Lee owned a knife like the one Tracy described. During the start of November 1998, 41-year-old Keith Anthony Fode appeared in court charged with perverting the course of justice. He was accused of making false written statements between August 1997 and February 1998 relating to the murder of Lee Harvey. He was released on bail the following month but was later taken into police custody. His solicitor, Tim Robinson, said, It is a distressing and serious case and he is not the type of person who should be in custody. Eventually, Keith Fode pleaded guilty to perjuring himself by making a false statement on August 28, 1997. In the same statement, he also lied to cover up his past convictions and true identity. Under a false name, Keith Fode claimed to be a marine biologist that specialised in the study of great white sharks. He was, in fact, unemployed. He told Tracy Andrews' defence team that on the night that Lee Harvey was murdered, he was hitchhiking and saw a man attack Lee as a terrified woman looked on. The deception was uncovered after his fingerprints were taken 
and police discovered his real identity. Keith Fode was given a conditional discharge only two months after Tracy Andrews was convicted of Lee Harvey's murder when he posed as a chief inspector directing traffic at the funeral of Diana, Princess of Wales. Mark Hollier, working on behalf of the defence, said, The thrust of the mitigation is that this defendant is, in fact, a sad, lonely and ultimately pathetic individual rather than someone who is malicious. The basis for Tracy Andrews' appeal was first logged using Keith Vogt's testimony, before later relying on the allegation that her defence was impeded by the press coverage of the trial. Keith Vogt stood emotionless as he was sentenced to three years in prison during May 2000. In 2001, four years after the trial, Tim Robinson, Tracy's lawyer, was sent to prison. Robinson's solicitors were a chain of law offices spread throughout the United Kingdom. The firm often completed green forms, as they were known, in which a defendant on a low income could apply for different types of legal aid. Robinson's solicitors falsified these forms. Police were made aware of the scam after it was noticed that Robinson's solicitors were inflating the cost of their bills, doubling or tripling prison visit expenses, and in some instances making up clients entirely. Junior clerks, whose basic annual salary was around £10,000, were claiming nearly £60,000 in overtime. Some staff were claiming work for more hours than there were in a day. Over £17 million was claimed by the firm through legal aid, and although exact figures haven't been confirmed, it was estimated that almost half of this amount may have been claimed illegally. Along with 28 other members of staff, the owner, Tim Robinson, was arrested for defrauding the Legal Aid Board, now known as the Legal Aid Agency. The trial, which was said to have cost taxpayers £3 million, was held at Bristol Crown Court. Five of the accused were acquitted, 22 pleaded guilty or were convicted, and the charges of two more were ordered to lie on file. This means that the judge agrees that there is enough evidence to proceed, however it is not in the public's interest to do so. In one instance, one of the defendants was unfit to stand trial. The serious fraud office discovered that Tim Robinson had taken around £3 million from the firm throughout the 90s, and so the judge ordered that half a million pounds of his own assets be confiscated to reimburse the Legal Aid Services Commission and another half a million be used in legal costs. Tim Robinson was sentenced to seven years in prison and has been struck off the Law Society, meaning he can never work in the industry again. He unsuccessfully appealed his sentence on two occasions and was released in July 2004. He still claims he is innocent to this day and has stated to the press, if it had been a fair, balanced investigation, I think all of us would have been content with that, but this was anything but fair and balanced. The dice was loaded from the start. Andrew Gregg, a spokesman for the Law Society, said, The whole profession regards Tim Robinson as a total and utter disgrace. We are ashamed of him and what he did. Unfortunately, in every walk of life, whether it's the legal world, the medical world, the dental world, even the police, you'll find the odd bad apple. While Tracy Andrews was still in prison, Maureen Harvey, Lee's mother, wrote a book chronicling the loss of her son and the events that followed. It's titled Pure Evil, How Tracy Andrews Murdered My Son, Deceived the Nation and Sentenced Me to a Life of Pain and Misery. In May 2007, she spoke with the BBC News and said, People say you should forgive because anger will consume you. I've put a lot of hatred and anger into that book and I think that has helped. But at the end of the day, I cannot forgive her, and I never will. In August 2010, Tracy Andrews was granted day release and was photographed in York City Centre, shopping and meeting a friend for lunch. In response to her release, a press spokesman for the Ministry of Justice said, Release on temporary license is used to prepare prisoners for their eventual release from custody. It helps to reduce the chance of reoffending by setting up appropriate employment and rehabilitation work in the community and maintaining family contact. This is essential for successful resettlement and an important factor in protecting the public. The spokesman added, 
only those assessed as representing minimal risk of escape or risk of harm to the public are eligible. Life and intermediate sentenced prisoners can only be allocated to open conditions by the Justice Secretary on the recommendation of the Parole Board. If prisoners breach their license in any way, they will be subject to disciplinary proceedings and are likely to be moved to closed conditions. Tracy Andrews was given a new identity and released from Arscombe Grange Open Prison, New York, during July 2011. Six years later, in August 2017, Tracy was married in a ceremony held in Cornwall. Thank you all for listening to Season 2. For more information, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. This podcast is created by a team of two, myself, Benjamin, and my wife, Rosie. We would both like to thank every one of you for taking the time to listen, and a special thanks to our Patreon supporters. They Walk Among Us will return for Season 3 on Wednesday, July 11th. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.